Good morning, Valley Bible Church. It's a joy to be uh, here with you this morning, to hear you sing and to, uh, to bring the Word of God. Uh, this morning, Chris is away in uh, Switzerland, yodeling in the Alps, I'm sure. We'll have to have him give us a performance when he gets back. Uh, no, I don't know. I don't know if he's yodeling. Probably not. Um, hopefully enjoying his time there uh, with his family, and Ben is up at family camp, and, and I am here, so this is what you got. Uh, no, no, I know you love me. It's all right. Um, but uh, my name is Caleb Klontz. If you know those of you uh, who may not know, I'm one of the pastors uh, on staff here. I oversee a couple of ministries, um, uh, among which are our, uh, our life group ministry, our small group ministry, which incidentally, if you are a life group leader, you should receive an email, me, email from me this week. Uh, life groups are getting ready to get started again, and so we need to hear from you. And so Nancy and I need to hear from you this week. Uh, so if you don't get that, it means it's probably in your junk mail or I've got the wrong email address, so let me know that. Uh, also, our, our global outreach, I oversee that as well. Um, but I wanted to take just a minute this morning just to, uh, to let you, remind you that we are, we are a Bible church, and, and as such, we hold God's Word to be very important. Um, we consider it of a, a importance, and that's why we have you stand uh, at times, well, actually every Sunday when we read God's Word, uh, it, it's important to us because we realize that that... Though we take great care in preparing our messages each week as, as those who are going to preach, uh, as pastors, um, we also realize that we are not infallible, right? That we are humans, uh, that we do study and we seek to unfold the text for our church and for our family. But, uh, but God's Word is not infallible, right? God's Word is holy and true, and so that is a time that we respect it. It's another, also a reason why uh, we preach, uh, practice the, the preaching uh, expositionally, expository preaching, we, which means that rather than topical, which means that we, we don't just pick topics, we don't have just little short sermon series, we do things like trudge through First Corinthians, which is what we're doing now, and there's uh, some great strengths to that, um, you know, there's uh, perhaps some weaknesses, some may say, you know, we, we arrive at passages where you're like scratching your head, why are we talking about some of these things that we're talking about on a Sunday morning, and if you're new or visiting, I guess I say all this just to say that that uh, that's because we're going through a passage, and, and we believe it's a strength because it forces us to deal with uh, things that we may not otherwise deal with as a church. It's easy when we can just pick and choose what topics we want to uh, to preach on. We don't always have to deal with the whole counsel of God, but we believe that all of God's Word, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. And so we are currently preaching, like I said, through 1 Corinthians. Our text this morning is 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14. And so if you would take your copy of God's Word, if you would stand together with me as you are able, in honor of the reading of God's Word, we will read God's Word for us today. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1 through 14. Am I not free... Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard 
and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share that right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform the sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly at the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning and we we thank you for your word. Lord, as we look at your word and take this time now, Lord, would you use it in each of our lives, Lord? Would, Would your word, the things that you have spoken to us here, Lord, convict us of sin if we need to be convicted. Lord, and would we confess those sins to you, Lord, as, as we know you are a great God and you are holy, and we often do things that, that do not line up with your goodness, with your word. And so we, we sin. We are great sinners. But you are a God that is great in mercy, great in grace, and you are faithful as we confess our sins to forgive us and to cleanse us of any unrighteousness. Lord, would you use your word to encourage our hearts this morning, Lord, would you embolden us in the gospel, Lord, would it be true of us and said true of those here at Valley Bible Church, that for this cause we live, for this cause we die, for the cause of Christ. Father God, we pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. You may be seated. So we need to remember that we are uh, we are in a, a passage, chapter nine, uh, that is actually a, a larger section in First Corinthians. I think uh, a number of people get this wrong when they take just chapter eight and then just chapter ten and then just chapter eleven, and it's easy for or chapter nine, chapter ten. Um, it's easy for us to think that way because we have those chapter headings. But this is a letter that Paul is writing, right? Paul is writing a letter to a church he's invested in, a church that he spent 18 months in. That's the, probably the second longest time he spent in his missionary journeys at any one church. Um, and he's invested in this church, and they have written to him now uh, with some questions, and he is answering those. He begins answering the first one in, uh, in chapter 7, and now in the beginning of chapter 8, he begins answering the second question, this question of, of food offered to idols. Can we eat food that's offered to idols? Or as has been put it last week, uh, one commentator, Garland, um, says it. Really, the question was, why can't we eat food offered to idols? And the short answer, which we'll get to, as Ben mentioned last week, but we'll get to uh, in chapter 10, is when can a Christian eat uh, food offered to idols? Never, right? That's the short answer, and we're going to get there. But, but Paul is, is taking the Corinthians along, and they, have, they have, have asserted this as a right that they may have, and they've asked Paul this question, and so he is going to continue uh, to continue to uh, to explain this to them and to try to teach them about the right use of rights. Rights is a word we hear used a lot today, don't we? 
rights. Everybody has rights. Uh, Where do our rights come from? Uh, For those of us who are U.S. citizens, we find some of our rights in our founding documents, don't we? The uh, Declaration of Independence even, all the way back, for example, states this, that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The U.S. Constitution, our, our governing document, has attached to it a Bill of Rights. We can see some of our constitutional rights there. But everybody seems to be talking about rights. It doesn't take much. Turn on the TV, uh, flip open a newspaper, and you're going to see a headline or an article about someone's rights. And that's something that is, is just, the world is abuzz with, especially in our country today. I, I did a quick scan of a few news sites uh, that I, I frequent, uh, just checking out different news articles um, and they're not CNN or Fox, so there are other ones. So that's just where I'm at. Um, probably there'd be a lot more. But, um, but a quick scan, there were headlines on human rights, gun rights, religious rights, workers' rights, voting rights, LGBTQQIP2SAA. By the way, that is 2022. Um, that's the correct acronym for that uh, group. But their rights, um, uh, other trans rights, and reproductive rights. Reproductive rights is, is a buzzword for our in our state right now, um, at least if you follow our governor's, uh, governor's office. Um, because we, unlike our neighbors in Idaho, we are committed to reproductive rights. If you don't know what I'm talking about when I say reproductive rights, um, I'm not talking about the right to reproduce. That's not actually what they're talking about, right? They're not talking about the command that God has given to uh, mankind to be fruitful and multiply, which God then lays out a really comprehensive plan for in his word, how that should happen. No, they're talking not about the right to make human life, um, but the right to take a human life. They're talking about abortion, and that's a big issue. No one has that right. No one has that right. That's a tough one. And as a church, that's something, not my notes, but, but we need to be, be serious about. And if you know someone... Or if we hear of someone who is considering an abortion, we need to be willing to say, no, hey, we'll help you. And we are willing to do that here at Valley Bible Church. If you hear of someone, if somebody is listening online and is considering that, seek, seek help. There are those of us who would willingly, gladly raise, uh, raise that child in a loving home. Okay? And we'll find someone. So please, please don't consider that option. Rights can be found within the context of the spheres of authority. We all have a certain level of personal autonomy and rights as individuals within the home, husbands, wives, mothers, fathers. We have the right to determine what happens within the home, right? We have how we set it up, whether you want chickens or goats or ducks or dogs or cats or whatever you might want to do, the color of the wall you want to paint, what kind of dishes you're going to have, what kind of meals you're going to create. We have all sorts of rights there, don't we? Um, we have a, the right as parents of how we're going to educate and raise our children, how we'll discipline them. Um, there are rights uh, in other places. Um, interestingly, Paul has already said that when a man and woman marry in chapter 7, that they actually give up their rights over their own bodies to one another. So there's an, an aspect in which you actually are losing some rights there. Um, but within the church, elders have rights in determining the ways in which we worship, the things that we, uh, that we do. Obviously, according to God's Word, we're under an authority as well. Some of those rights are delegated to deacons um, who then take on some of that task as well. Within the civil sphere, governors, those who rule over us, have rights. 
rights to make laws, laws that are meant to protect and guard the citizens. Um, rights, 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 wherever we look, we're hearing about rights, and there are rights. Um, but where are our rights as believers found? And that's what we're going to begin to look at here, um, where we look at where, are, where our rights are realized in verses 1 through 7. Paul had rights. Paul had rights as a Roman citizen. At times he appealed to those rights to take his case up the food chain, to not be beaten as a Roman citizen, things like that. But Paul isn't primarily concerned, I don't think, in our passage this morning about those rights. He's more concerned about the rights or liberties he has in Christ. The rights and liberties he has as an apostle. And as we'll see, the rights and liberties he has as the spiritual father and founder of the church in Corinth. In verses 1 and 2, Paul begins with four questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Paul isn't necessarily making a case for his apostleship here. Okay, He's going to do that later in 2 Corinthians, which is his fourth letter probably. But anyway, uh, 2 Corinthians, he's going, to, he's going to address and defend his apostleship. That's not the point here. Uh, the point here is that he's providing a foundation for the rights that he is going to, uh, to let them know that he has. The foundation on which his rights are realized. The presumed answer that the Corinthians would have had to all of these questions was, Yes, yes, of course. Yes, Paul is free. Yes, Paul is an apostle, having seen Jesus. And yes, they are though his work in the Lord. Paul further affirms his apostleship and his authority over them by continuing with the next verse. If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Even if others didn't acknowledge Paul's apostleship, they surely would have. They would have because he was an apostle to them. He planted the church. He was with them all that time. I think it's good for us to pause here for just a minute and talk a little bit about what it means for someone to be an apostle. Because that is a word that is sometimes thrown around today by various religious orders. The word in its simplest, uh, apostle or apostolos, uh, in its simplest, I guess, small a sense, is simply sent one. Okay? That's what it means, a sent one. But its primary, primary use in Scripture is reserved for the twelve, right? The twelve apostles, the twelve disciples, we sometimes call them, even though there were many more disciples. But the twelve apostles, Peter or Cephas, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, or both Bartholomew, um, Matthew, Thomas, James the Less, Simon the Zealot, Jude or Thaddeus, and Judas Iscariot, who was later replaced by Matthias in Acts chapter 1. That's the primary use. Now, Paul was a small a apostle. Okay, He was a small a apostle, um, as was Barnabas, because they were sent ones. And there's times in Acts where you need to read, and you're reading, and it says, and the apostles, Paul and Barnabas, went out. But Paul, unlike Barnabas, was also a big a apostle. Okay? The apostle Paul had been commissioned by Christ himself as his apostle to the Gentiles. And uh, John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew in their systematic theology, um, I'm going through that with a couple of guys, but they lay out the foundation or the following biblical principles for an apostle, for one to be considered an apostle. And I believe we have those for you. Apostles were chosen directly by the Lord Jesus. Okay? An apostle had to have been chosen by the Lord Jesus himself. Not in the sense that we're all chosen, okay? We're talking about called to the specific ministry of apostleship. Um, they were able to perform the signs of an apostle. 
being authenticated by miraculous signs and wonders and mighty works. And they were witnesses with their own eyes of the resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, while reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he had preached to them, Paul writes this. He writes that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles, not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. As we can see in that passage, the title of apostle was not one that Paul took lightly or even considered himself worthy of, but one that he did assume nonetheless because he had been chosen by, as an apostle by Christ himself. So Paul is the 13th and last genuine apostle. And those who assume that title today, they really have no right assuming a title of apostle. Moving back on in our text, though, uh, just an aside there for you. Um, But uh, having established that he is free, that he is an apostle, that they were indeed his work in the Lord, Paul continues by laying out several of his rights based on these things in the form of three more questions. We have uh, verse 3 in between there that says, My defense to those who examine me is this. And there's some discussion actually with this verse among scholars as to whether or not it goes with verse 1 and 2 or if it goes with the following passage. Uh, it doesn't really matter. Either way, Paul is, is laying out um, not so much a defense uh, of himself, but rather uh, his explanation of his use of rights and how he would answer someone if they were to ask him you know, why he has these rights. And his rights are based on Again, his freedom in Christ, on his apostleship, and on his authority over the Corinthians. Verse 4, first question. We do not have a right to eat, or do we not have a right, rather, to eat or drink? The answer is, of course, yes. As a devout, practicing Jew prior to his conversion, Paul would have been required to follow certain guidelines, right? According to the law, certain restrictions that were laid out. But now he has freedom in Christ. He has freedom to eat and drink whatever he pleases. But we saw just last week, Paul has said in, in verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 13, that if it causes a brother to stumble, he would gladly give up that right. He would give up that freedom. In verse 5 he says, Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, or Peter, Again, the answer is, of course, yes. Yes, he has the right. And it's worth noting here that Paul, Paul appeals to the apostles, along with James and Jude, the half-brothers of Jesus, when, when talking about his, this right to have a believing uh, wife travel along with him and to be married. This means that, that the majority, if not all, of these apostles and these church leaders, the brothers of, of Jesus at the time, would have been married and would have likely taken their wife along with them. And so that is a a standard practice. Um, Some faith uh, practices don't believe that uh, that their ministers should be married, but we see a clear example of that throughout Scripture. And Paul had a right to be married. Paul could have been married had he chosen to. A couple weeks ago we dealt with that whole passage, right? But Paul had chosen not to be married, so this, this kind of right is a moot point. 
um, to bring a believing wife along with them because he had chosen for the sake of the gospel to not be married. There were limitations and distractions that we would have placed on him in his ministry that he recognizes, and so he feels it best under those present circumstances to not marry. In verse 6, we see the third question. Do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Again, yes, as gospel ministers, Paul and Barnabas had every right to be completely supported by those to whom they were ministering. As Paul is going to expound upon this right in the rest of our time this morning, uh, he, he really drills down and nails down uh, on this one. Um, and he's going to use it as his primary example for the proper use of rights, the proper use of liberties. Verse 7, Paul follows up these three commands, or these, these three things, this, especially this third one, with, with three examples, rather, not commands, but from daily life. Three examples from daily life. We'll see those in verse 7. These would have been common to his audience. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one, right? Soldiers don't serve on their own dime. Their expenses are provided for, and they're even uh, paid for their service. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Again, no one, especially in that time. We may have some vines that we go, ah. I mean, I've got some tomato plants and nobody eats tomatoes in our family, so it's kind of weird, right? So I feed them to the ducks. Someone profits off them. But anyway, no one would, have, would plant a vineyard and not eat the fruit of it. Who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? We don't all drink goat's milk, but um, maybe a cow's, right? Who has a dairy farm and doesn't drink the milk? Anyway, again, the answer is intended to be no one. The one who tends a flock will surely partake of the milk. And Christemacher, uh, a commentator, makes the further observation that not only were these common, the, all three of these common to, uh, to the everyday lives of, of the audience and to Paul, but these are also, the, the, the army, the vine, the flock, these are also commonly used of God's people throughout Scripture, which would have only driven, uh, driven home Paul's point that he had every right to not have worked and to been, have been supported by the Corinthians. We're going to see more lessons at the end, but just a couple of lessons for us in this portion this morning. The first one, before we seek to exercise our rights, we should be sure that they are indeed our rights. The Corinthians are asserting a right to something that we will see in the end they actually don't have. They don't have a right to eat meat offered to idols unless they don't know it was offered to idols, and we're going to get to that in chapter 10. On the other hand, Paul had rights, and he knew what those rights were and where they were found, right? where they were realized. The ones he mentions are based on his, again, his freedom that he has in Christ, based on his apostleship, based on his relationship with the church in Corinth as their founder and the father in the faith. Another one, like Paul, our rights, our liberties or our freedoms as believers are, are realized or found in the person, work, and word of Christ. We must find them there. Because of Christ, we are no longer bound by the law of sin and death. Because of Christ, we are no longer bound by the, the Old Testament law with all of its regulations and limitations, but rather we are bound, as Paul will say later in this chapter, by the law of Christ. We are bound to, to love God. We are bound to love others, to follow Christ's commands. But we're also free. You can eat bacon. Right? 
You can have cheese on your hamburger if you choose to do so for lunch today. You can eat shrimp and lobster for dinner tonight if you want to. We're not bound by those things. You can wear cotton, polyester, viscose, spandex blend jeans. You know, like a pair of mine are. I check the tag at home just to make sure. Mixed fabrics, we can do that. We're not bound by the law. There are many, many freedoms that we have. Obviously, many more than we have time to go into today. But, but we can do those things. And Paul could do those things as well. But as we continue, we're going to see that, that as Paul continues to drill down on this, this final right to, to receive uh, his financial aid, his, his support from the Corinthians, um, we're going to see when to relinquish our rights. When to relinquish our rights. And in verse 8, Paul says, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? It could be that someone looking at those say, yeah, but Paul, those are just common things, right? Obviously, a farmer is going to profit from uh, his crops. Obviously, a soldier that's going to be paid, you know, those are just in in the natural order of the world. Those are things anyone can see. And so Paul is going to turn to to three more examples. He's going to first look at the law of Moses in verses 9 and 10. And then we're going to skip over 11 and 12. That's going to bother some of you. That's okay. Uh, we're going to go uh, into verse, uh, verse 13, uh, looking at the temple practice, and verse 14, um, looking at the teachings of Christ. And then we'll come back to 11 and 12. So verses 9 and 10. First, Paul finds support for his right in the law of Moses. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned with oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. This quote from the Law of Moses is found in in Deuteronomy 25.4 in a list of sundry laws. And Paul quotes it here. He also quotes it again at another time in in 1 Timothy 5.17-18, where he's talking about elders. He's talking to Timothy. Um, who was overseeing a church, and says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Here Paul quotes some words of Christ that that we will see uh, again, because Paul refers to uh, that same passage again in our our, uh, time this morning, in our passage this morning. Surely God cares about the animals, right? The way it's read, at least in, in, in the uh, NASB, um, where Paul says, doesn't care about animal or oxen, does he? Yes, he does, okay? <laughs> um, it, it's not that. But, but the, Paul's point is more this, that if this applies to oxen, how much more then should it apply to man? If the, the same principle is true for oxen, the same would clearly be true for men. And Paul sees that, the, that the law is written for our benefit. And in 13, moving on to verse 13, we see this, Paul's use of the example of the Levites who perform service in the temple. He says this, Do you not know, he says, that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Again, another obvious example for his listeners that those who serve in the temple receive the share of the sacrifices. That is how they were able to provide for themselves to eat and, and, and to, to have sustenance. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. 
And then lastly, in verse 14, Paul uses Jesus' instruction as support for this rite. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 70 of his disciples. He sends them out in pairs to go ahead of him to the cities that he will be visiting. And he he tells them to proclaim, basically to prepare the way, proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus was coming. He instructed them not to take any money or any provisions with them. They went with very, very basic things. And then he told them that if they found a house that they were welcomed in, he said this, stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And Paul applies this here and also in First Timothy to all of those who labor in the gospel. All right, Paul, we get the point. I'm sure the Corinthians by this point in the letter were going, we get it, we get it. You have the right for us to support your ministry, right? You've clearly laid out the biblical basis for your right to not work and be supported by us. Why does Paul go to such great lengths to make it abundantly clear that he has every right to this amongst the Corinthians? Because back in chapter 8, Paul begins this whole section by addressing what the Corinthians believe is their right to eat food sacrificed to idols. And Paul will demonstrate again, like we said, in chapter 10, why this is not a right. But right now, he, he chooses an obvious right that he has, something that he has more than proven is a right that he has, biblically, as a demonstration to them what it means to practice Christian liberty. If we return to verses 11 and 12, we read this. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? The obvious answer, no, it isn't too much for you to reap material things from us. If others share the right over you, do we not more? Obviously, if others were able to profit from them, Paul as the founder of the church, as the, their apostle, would have had every right, even more than the others, to have received support from them. But here's the key to this whole matter in, in the end of chapter, or verse 12. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Let's look at verses eight, nine, chapter eight, verse nine, and uh, and and this chapter nine, verse twelve, b side by side, because they're actually this is it really is the key. This is part of the reason that we can easily say, tell that that this isn't a new discussion. Paul is is continuing really this discussion of me sacrificed to idols and the use of of Christian liberty. You see there it says, but take care that this liberty, literally that word is right. It's the exact same word that's used for right in the rest of these passages. But take care that this right of yours, and, and I feel like there's a bit of tongue-in-cheek there, a little bit of a parenthesis, even though it's not there in the, in the Greek, but they don't really do that. But anyway, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block or a snare to the weak. And then here in our passage, nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we will cause no hindrance. That's the same root word there. They're different words, but it's the same root word in stumbling block and hindrance, really meaning to snare, that we will cause no snare to the gospel of Christ. 
And Paul is juxtaposing his use of liberty versus what they are desiring to do, which could cause a brother to stumble. We see the, the grid by which Paul chooses whether or not he will exercise a liberty or whether he will relinquish that right is the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel. And it's hard to determine exactly otherwise why Paul chose to work in Corinth rather than to allow them to provide for him. There's actually significant evidence that they actually later questioned his apostleship because he wouldn't receive funds from them. Because for the the Corinthians, in that context, teachers and people that came in were paid. That, that That would have been a natural thing for them to have done. Now, in a Jewish context... Rabbis often worked, worked a job, but not, a lot of the church in, in, in Corinth would not have had that same background. In Acts 18, we read this. After these things, he left Athens. This is talking about Paul in his journey, his second missionary journey, and he went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working. For by trade, they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the work. Paul was educated. He was a teacher. He was a man of, of notable pedigree. He had a great background and upbringing. Somehow along the way, he learned a trade. He learned tent making. Not sure how, um, but he was uh, able to make and mend tents, and he takes this work on, a task that no doubt would have seemed very menial for the Corinthians. It was not a job that was you know, uh, necessarily viewed as, yeah, as, as a, a higher echelon career, right? Uh, he, was, he was a laborer. And we know that he labored. He labored hard doing, doing this. But why would he take this on? Perhaps to be an example to the Corinthians of humility. Perhaps it afforded him greater opportunities to share the gospel in Corinth. Perhaps it's so that it was so that he could preach the gospel freely um, without it appearing that he was teaching them this, this truth for his own personal gain. Whatever the reason, we don't know. It was with the express purpose of not causing a hindrance or a snare to the gospel. What time is it? I don't have time. No, nope, past time. We're going to skip this next part. So we're trying to go a little bit faster because, um, spoiler alert, I'm probably not supposed to say anything because I think we're announcing it next week at Church Behind the Church, but we're looking in the fall by going to three services and so trying to get times down, so trying to get a little faster. So if we get you out five minutes early, that's actually what we're supposed to be is on time. So <laughs> if it's five minutes early, it's on time. That's why I'm going to skip this part, and you might get out on time. All right? Um, there was a whole little part I was going to talk about. It's, it's a very interesting study. Um, there's a, a lot of people use this passage to talk about tent-making ministry versus uh, raising support in missions. And, and there's, there's a lot of great principles for us to hear that we can look at in, in missions um, and interestingly enough, it is not that Paul never received support, okay? In fact, later in 2 Corinthians, he's going to say, it's my desire to come to you, and then after I've gone to Macedonia and I come back to you again, that you would send me on my way. 
And he says that to a number of churches. And when he says that, that word to be sent on his way, on his journey, uh, really means with support. You're going to give me some stuff so that I can keep doing my journey. Paul, even later in 2 Corinthians, tells the Corinthians, I robbed other churches. And we find out that it was when Paul and Silas come to Corinth, the reason that Paul can go full-time is because they bring him support for his needs. Okay, So it's not that Paul never relied on, other, on support from other churches. In fact, he does. But it seems as though the general principle that he didn't when he was first planting a church. And there was a reason for that, so that it would not be a hindrance for the gospel's sake. But later he will say, you can help me out now. All right, regardless of what the exact reason was that Paul did not exercise this right over the Corinthians, his primary motivation is the gospel. And it should be ours as well. We are to be about the business of proclaiming the gospel and making disciples. That's what the church exists for. Making disciples. Here in Spokane Valley, yes, training you up, but it's training you up for the work of the ministry out there. Yes, to serve in the church as well. We, train, we desire to train you up through the preaching of the word for that, but also to be out in your community sharing the gospel with those around you, seeking opportunities for that. So as we get close to our close today, we have some lessons. There'll be four of them. I know that's a lot, but four lessons. The first, more often than not, the true exercise of our liberty is in relinquishing our rights. The true exercise of our liberty is found in relinquishing our rights. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2.16 when he's writing to his audience um, with their gospel witness in view, 1 Peter. He says this, he says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. What? But we're free. Yes, we're free. We're free from so many things, and we have many freedoms in Christ. But we must also come under the law of Christ himself. We are his servants, his slaves. The second, live with gospel intentionality. Live with gospel intentionality. It's something I like to say often. They kind of give me a little bit of grief around it sometimes around the office. Um, it's, it's a little bu- a buzz phrase for me. I do my best to remember it. Sometimes I forget, and when I'm feeling like it's all about me, Linda leans over and goes, don't forget, it's not about you. It's about God. It's about the gospel. We're supposed to be intentional that way. We should live our lives this way. What does that mean? It means that looking at every interaction that we have with another person as an opportunity for the gospel. Everyone. And yeah, you're not going to be able to stop in the middle of a grocery, you know, grocery aisle while everybody's freaked out behind you and and, and share the gospel, but, but, but an encouraging word, an opportunity to build on that relationship day after day, week after week as you visit, and, and be gospel light and witness, looking for opportunities with our neighbors and those around us. It means considering whether exercising or relinquishing our rights in any given situation will allow us a greater opportunity to share the gospel or will be a hindrance to our sharing the gospel. We must, like Paul, see everything that we do through the grid of the gospel. Next, we should always be willing to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel. We should always be willing to give up our rights for the sake of the gospel. If you go as a missionary to a Jew or Muslim country, you'll likely need to set aside your liberty to eat pork. 
Okay? Are you free to eat pork? Yes, but for the sake of the gospel. That's the same if you invite your Muslim neighbors. Let's say you have Muslim neighbors and you're trying to reach them. You're building a relationship with them. And you invite them over for a barbecue. Okay? Nix the bacon and the sausage, okay? Yeah, be considerate. It means that we have to know sometimes whom we're trying to reach so that we're not unintentionally or intentionally using a freedom as a hindrance for the gospel. If you go as a missionary to Italy, like Linda and I did, you can exercise your freedom to drink alcohol. In fact, if you don't drink alcohol in Italy and you say you're a Christian, they will think you are either a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. That doesn't mean you drink a lot of alcohol, but in other words, if you're not... It can actually almost be a hindrance to not drink alcohol. So if you don't have the freedom to do that, maybe God is not calling you to a country like Italy. But if you're going to go to another country, like our friends in in England, where drunkenness and alcoholism is is such a huge issue, then it'd probably be best to give that up and not exercise that freedom. And Paul gives up his freedoms at times. He doesn't always give them up all the time. He gives up some of his rights depending on the situation. We're going to see that as he, he finishes off chapter 9 later, not uh, next week, probably the week after. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the, the prince of preachers. I know I mention him often when I preach, but uh, not so much because he was the best preacher, has the best messages, but he was such a prolific preacher. He was said that he preached as much as, as seven different messages a week at times. I can't even begin to imagine what that would be, be like. Um, I hope they were shorter. Uh, but anyway, he, uh, he, he preached a lot. He was also known for smoking cigars. He liked to enjoy a cigar. And when he was challenged on it uh, from time to time, he would say something to the effect of, show me in God's Word where it says, thou shalt not smoke cigars, and I will gladly give it up. But, right, but interestingly enough, if you actually study the life of, of Spurgeon, there were times when he gladly gave that up when he knew there was another brother that was struggling with addiction. And we need to be willing to do those sorts of things as well. Even if you have the liberty to do something, to give that up. Later in life, he would give it up altogether because he realized that what he thought were the benefits were outweighing what the, the negative impact on his health, and so he gave them up toward the end of his life. Anyway, so there you go. Last example, gospel ministry always comes at a personal cost. Gospel ministry always comes at a personal cost. For Paul, it meant laboring day and night at times, choosing to live at times in hunger, poorly clothed, even living on the run, facing being stoned, being, being uh, persecuted. It meant often having to defend himself against those who sought to undermine his ministry, and the gospel that he preached. It was no easy task, but it was one he was willing to take. Gospel ministry will come at a personal cost. If we're serious about the gospel, if we're serious about saying, for this cause I live, for this cause I die, I surrender all for the cause of Christ. If we can sing that, we better mean it. We better mean it, and we're called to that. In conclusion, Paul presents himself to the Corinthians as an example to emulate in a proper exercise of his rights. Paul was willing to go to any length in his personal life to see the gospel was not hindered. And he is an example worth following. But for the Apostle Paul, the ultimate example was Jesus Christ. Who, 
although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied, he humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming or being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Which brings us to our time around the Lord's Supper this morning as we consider what Christ has done for us. I invite the worship team to come up. You can start trying to get your little thing open. I know that can be a challenge. Um, I'll start trying to get mine open as well. It takes us to our time in the Lord's Supper, and, and this is something that we do. We partake of together as, as believers, as believers in Christ, those who have placed our faith, our trust in Him for salvation. And if you're visiting this morning, we invite you to, to participate with us if you've placed your faith or trust in Christ. If that's something you haven't done yet, it's important to note that this is a declaration as well of faith and trust in what Christ has done for us. So we would not ask you to make a declaration that you wouldn't want to make. And so we would ask that you simply refrain. It's completely fine to do that. As we just heard from Paul's words in Philippians, Jesus willingly gave up his rights. He humbled himself to the point of death, death on the cross for our sake. It was our sake that he did that. Later in 1 Corinthians, Paul is going to, to tell, uh, tell his audience that Jesus and us, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took bread and he broke it. And he said this, this is my body which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And then, in the same way after supper, he took the cup. And he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you partake together with me? Father God, we are thankful for your son. Thankful that you sent your son. Thankful that he was willing to give up his rights. Thankful that he was willing to, in obedience, humble himself to the point of death for our sake. And Lord, we, we remember that and we, as, as, as we're reminded there in 1 Corinthians, we, we celebrate this, we do this as often as, uh, and as often as we do, looking forward, proclaiming his death, but looking forward to the day in which he will come. And Lord, we look forward with eager anticipation and longing for that day. Thank you for the gift of your Son. God's people said, Amen.